Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hey, and welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. So glad you're joining us. And also joining us is my co-host, Emily Schultz. Ooh, hey, guys. How are you? Well, you can't answer that question, <laughs> that but would I wish be fun, you could. Though. I wish they could. Actually, they can if they write in and tell us how they are. That is true. We get a lot of responses. That could be really interesting. Yeah. Tell us how you're doing. Please don't do that. Don't tell us how you're doing. That would be weird. <laughs> we got a lot of people just saying, I'm good. I'm good. Especially if it was just like, you know how like very shallow people are. We say, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, that's me. That's how I answer most So we'd of the have time. a lot of messages going, I'm good. How are you? Yeah. And then we'd start this vortex of just like, yeah, right. I don't know if we should yeah. do that. But so. genuinely, if like, yes. I don't know, we can help you with anything. If there's <laughs> questions you have about the podcast, guys, we'd love to hear from you. Usually we talk about this in the That's outro right. of the podcast, Please but we'll put talk it here. To us. We uh, you can reach out to, to us, to us. Uh, on hello at resonateindy.com. Right. Let us know where you're from, maybe what you're gleaning from these podcasts, mm. um, maybe some things you'd like to hear. Yes. And today's interview, I'm so excited about. Oh, me too. We have a good friend of mine named Allie Fallon. On the inter- on the podcast, interviewing her, and she is my writing coach. Dang, which is really cool. That's a big uh, that's a big job. Yeah, she coaches a lot of writers, authors. She's ghostwritten before. She can't Ooh. tell us who she's ghostwritten for. That was my ghost. <laughs> that was your ghost sound. <laughs> what was that again? How was that, Casper? Come on, Casper. No, nope. That was a one time <laughs> deal. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic, ghostwriter. No, what is it? Ghostwriter, the pattern is full. Do you remember the show Ghostwriter back in the day? I think I'm too young for that. You are too young. Oh, man, that's such a depressing thing. But she has ghostwritten for a lot of people. She wasn't allowed to tell us who she's ghostwritten for. Apparently, they have to sign some kind of contract that says, like, hey, you can only tell one person in your life who you Bummer. ghostwrite for. It's really weird. So we kept pressing and prying, and she wouldn't tell us. But she also helps writers. So sometimes you'll see in a book, like, you know, such and such with so-and-so, right? So it's like, you know, this person. It would be like Davy Blackburn with Allie Fallon, and that's like someone who kind of comes alongside and actually writes the story for them, but they're telling the story. But what she did for me is she kind of coached me along in the process, and then I wrote the book, and I sent it to her for like the first wave of edits. Hmm. Um, But her story is really intriguing. The reason we have her on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast is because I met Allie, oh man, probably six months after Amanda passed. Okay. I was out in California with Bob Goff. Our friend at the living room event. We love Bob Goff. We love him. At some point, hopefully we're going to get him on the podcast as well. That'd be dreamy. Talk about all things whimsical. Yeah. Balloons. Balloons. We need to get balloons and in here. cake pops. Yeah. Right? And so we're hanging out with Bob Goff, and there was one night that Bob had arranged for all the speakers and presenters to hang out at Club 33, which was the most exclusive club right in all the world, country, Walt Disney himself started this club with 33 members back in like the 50s. And so now there's only like 300 members. And so Bob gets us all into this like like club, like the cigar club, to just hang out and talk. And while I'm sitting there talking with some folks, uh, mingling, Allie comes walking around and she sits down next to me. She goes, hey, you should write a book. And I'm like... Hi, I'm Davy Blackburn. <laughs> we had literally not spoken at all, right? Yeah. She's like, you should write a book. And so she introduced herself to me, and she just said, man, I've been following the story. 
And um, I just really think you have a great story to tell. You should write a book. And that's what started me on the process of writing. Yeah. Is um, just, you know, okay, this this girl prompted me that that I should write a book. And then as we're having conversation that night, she tells me that she has just recently gone through a really uh, tough divorce. Wow. And how some of the stuff that I've been writing has been helping her as she processed through her divorce. And so it turns out that she, you know, is this this writing coach that helps a lot of people um, write their stories. She's been working with Scott Hamilton, the figure okay. skater, to yeah. write his book. Um, and uh, she first season worked for Donald Miller, just um, working, uh, basically managing his blog. Okay. And so just a phenomenal gal with lots of insight, lots of experience, and also has walked through a bit of trial and pain herself. Yeah. And she writes about that. And so I'm, I'm just pumped about this interview. Yeah, it's a really, really good one. So let's not delay. Let's hop Perfect. right into it um, and listen to the, the first part of the interview with Allie Fallon. Okay, welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast. And I'm sitting here in Nashville, Tennessee with my good friend, Allie Fallon. Allie, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are it's you? It's great to have you on the Thanks. podcast. And Thanks I've so been much. really looking forward to this one. One, because um, I need you guys, the listener, to know that without Allie, there is no way I would have been able to write my book. <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, people are going to be able to read it. At some point, we're going to get it out there. I can't wait for that. It's time. But I honestly would not have been able to um, to walk through the process. So I'm really excited about, toward the end of this podcast, talking about the writing process and how that was helpful. Um, but I'm super excited about having you on the show. And we just ate at this fantastic sandwich place per your your suggestion, your referral. It's my favorite. What is it's it called? Mitchell's Deli. Mitchell's Deli. Mm -hmm. This town is so hipster. <laughs> Just more hipster than Indianapolis. <laughs> well, I guess so. Because I mean like... I mean, the, I'm from Portland, so it's not more hipster than Portland. That's true. But. That's true. But that that is very true. And so they wrap all their sandwiches in Portland with this really nice, high quality wrapping, just like they did at Mitchell's yes. Deli. Yeah, huh? exactly. It the, was just like the old school butchers, you know. That's what it was. It paper was like and butcher paper. Tape. Mm -hmm. It it actually is butcher paper. <laughs> it's it's actual butcher paper. It's a lot different than like going to Arby's. Yeah, and it is getting wrapped in foil. Right. <laughs> what a great restaurant! And uh, Allie's always the one to refer us to restaurants when we come down here. We did Bar Taco last time. Is that right? I do my best. Try to. Oh, I mean, it's hard to run out of places here in Nashville that are good to eat. So. <laughs> Well, I'm excited about you guys hearing from Allie and, and the journey that she's been on. And um, and uh, like we talked about in the in the hosting part, part, how we got connected and our journeys are very, uh, very parallel, mm -hmm. it seems like. Um, and so I remember the first time you and I had a conversation, it just felt like we were both in the same space of yeah. trying to figure out what the heck was God doing and mm -hmm. our stories, and who are we now? Yeah. And um, it was just a, that, that night, I just remember it being um, a very healing thing for me to hear someone be like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, it was I feel the same for you. me too. It was such a God moment that our paths crossed at the exact time they did. And and I remember just being shocked at the um, like how close our timelines were right. to one another. That seemed not accidental to me. Right. That... Um, you know, like you were talking about, we were in the same place at the same time. So yep. just to have someone go, I get it. I, I know where you're at was yep. really healing for me too. Yeah, absolutely. And it didn't hurt that it was at Disneyland. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> With Bob Goff. <laughs> uh, yeah. H happiest place on earth. With the know? happiest person on yes, earth. Yes, exactly. Possibly. Yeah. 
Oh man. So why don't you tell the listener, um, just, just, just tell them a little bit about your story. So who are you? What's brought you to this point? Um, what brought you to the point right there in what was it in May Mm -hmm. that you and I met? Give us a little backdrop. Yeah. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon, lived there most of my life. And, um, I went to school to get an English degree and then got my master's degree in teaching. And the plan all along was to teach. And in the back of my mind, I always knew I really loved writing. I'd been writing for as long as I could remember and thought maybe I had this pipe dream that someday I would write a book, but it always seemed like a pipe dream to me. Mm. And then whenever in high school and college, when people would ask, you know, what are you, what are you going to do in college? What's your degree going to be? What are you going to do after college? I would say, you know, I've always wanted to write a book and I would get the response oftentimes, you know, that you could expect, which is okay, but you better have a backup plan because you can't make any money as a writer, (laughs) which, you know, is true. So I guess I'm thankful for the advice for that. Um, It's not true, but it's true in ways. So I'm I'm grateful, um, you know, people were looking out for me. But I really made the decision, the path to be a teacher was um, a path I chose because I thought that this thing that I really wanted to do wasn't really realistic. So anyway, so I get my degree and I teach for a couple of years uh, in the public school system in Portland. And it was a huge, steep learning curve. Uh, Teaching is not a profession for the faint of heart. Uh, Teachers are heroes. They're amazing. They're absolute heroes. And and you might want to have a backup plan because you can't make any money in that either. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That is very true. They're the most underpaid, underappreciated profession probably out there. It Every is single so one true. of us goes, hey, that teacher that I had that marked so much of who I am. And oh. yet it's just, I feel like we just we yeah. don't, we don't treat teachers well. We don't appreciate them. It's so true. It's so true. And so, I mean, teaching for me was hard in all of the normal mm-hmm. ways that it's hard. But I think the other reason it was hard is a reason that's harder to explain, which is the sense, and maybe some people listening can identify with this feeling of just like, this is not where I'm supposed mm, to be. I'm yep. not doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And what are we, what am I supposed to be doing? I don't even right. know. I don't I have language it? for that. And yeah. I don't, um, I don't have language for it. And I don't even know, even if I did, even if I could sort of move out of this, where would I even go? What would life look like yeah. on the other side of that? And so I would drive to work every day, my last year of teaching with that feeling turning mm. over and over and over again in me, like I was driving in the wrong direction but I wasn't really sure how to correct my direction. Wow. And I also felt really guilty because I felt like I should be grateful for the fact that in this is in 2008, so... Oh, yeah, that you had a job. I had a job. Yeah. No, Tons of people were... Like, people I had graduated with, my, mm-hmm. my um, schoolmates were all looking for jobs and couldn't find them, and I had this full-time gig. And, um, it, you know, it's a really... It's not a great... It doesn't pay great, but it's a very honorable profession. Right. So, And I'm helping kids, and I feel like, you know, how can I how can I um, complain about this life that I'm living? And, you know, I'm living in Portland. I live close to my family. I've got a a strong, supportive, immediate family that love me and support me and are available. And I see them all the time and I've got good friends and I'm going to this great church with tons of young people. And I just felt awful because I knew something was off, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I felt like maybe I was just being ungrateful. Mm. So um, during that season, a friend said to me, I was explaining to her, we're at a wedding of another friend of ours, and this was like another opportunity, like insult on the insult to injury, (laughs) like watching, I'm 26 years old, I'm watching another friend get married, and I had thought my whole life that by the time I was 26, I would be married, and I really wanted to have a family, Mm. and I'm watching this happen for all my friends, and it's not happening for me, and couldn't quite figure that out, and so I'm complaining to her at this wedding at the reception, and I... 
And she says to me, you know, what would you do if you could wake up tomorrow and you could just do whatever you wanted? Like if you could take all the expectations off, if, you know, you didn't have to worry about what your parents wanted you to do, or you didn't have to worry about making money, or you didn't have to worry about any of these other things, what you thought God wanted you to do, what would you do if you could just do whatever you wanted to do? And my first response to her was anger, mm. which I feel like is telling. I, I pay more attention now to when you feel anger because right. where there's anger, there's resistance. And where there's resistance, there's always room for growth. Wow. So, um, so, but that was my first response to her was anger because I thought, why would you ask me a question like that when nobody gets to just do whatever they want? Yeah. Yeah. And what was really happening, I can see now, is that she had woken up something inside of me, something very a really deep um you know it's like your spirit like a, like a, yeah absolutely it's, you know it's like, like the truth like of this you this is who i am yes yeah. mm-hmm. and i didn't know what to do with that i think a lot of us don't know what to do with it right. we're living our life based on shoulds right and then that deep that really true spirit part of us our Just souls gets suppressed gets pushed down Stifled, because it's inconvenient yeah. and it's messy and we don't know what to do with it so anyway but she got me thinking along that track and mm-hmm. 6 months after that i um, submitted my resignation, quit my job, moved out of my apartment, sold everything I owned, and spent a year driving across the country <laughs> to, to write this book. I, I realized what I had always wow. wanted to do was write a book. And I thought, like, okay, well, how could I make that ever happen? I would have to have basically no expenses. Right. And I have to have something interesting enough happen to me. I was realizing, like, my life is really actually kind of boring. You know, <laughs> like, I wake up, I do the same and... things every day. Yeah. And so I would have to do something... I would have to sort of um, turn my life on its head a bit yeah. to have anything worth writing about. And so that's what I did. Sold all my stuff, um, packed everything I could fit into my Subaru Man. Outback. <laughs> Subaru Outback. <laughs> and, um, of course. Which lasted me until Wyoming, and I broke down in Wyoming and then had to get a new car. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, so that happened in 2010. And then in 2013, I published a book, Packing Light. My That was my first memoir, Packing yeah. Light. And actually, let me back up because in the midst of all of that, I, when I was writing the book and writing the proposal for the book, I had finished the road trip and came home and working on this book and launched a blog. And you know, everybody was saying, if you want to be an author, you have to grow an audience. So yeah. I was really focused on getting traffic to my yeah, blog. That was yeah. the big thing. And um, I realized I was in over my head. I had no idea what I was doing. I knew I had this dream to write a book. I felt like it, like God had put this dream mm. in my heart and that it wasn't for nothing, but I had no idea how I was ever going to make it happen for myself. And right in the midst of that is when I met the my husband, mm. the guy who I eventually married. And um, he w- not only worked in publishing, but knew, you know, had connections with a lot of people right. he could introduce me to, and um, was just felt like the answer to all of my prayers yeah, in so many ways. Right, in a lot of ways. To all of my prayers, you know, I, I had really wanted to be married and. Yeah wanted to fall in love and wanted to have a family and wanted to publish this book. And so um, he was also, in addition to having worked in marketing and publishing for a long time, was also in the process of planting a church in Florida. Mm. And so uh, we met, had a whirlwind romance story, got engaged. We met in August, August 30th, Okay. got engaged um, in October, end of October, wow. right around right around Thanksgiving, uh, Halloween. Halloween, that's the holiday. Wow. And then got married on December 31st on New Holy Year's Holy cow, Eve so within six months. Year. Yeah, it was four months and one day you from the met, day I met him to the day I married him. Wow. So, um, and it was just a whirlwind. It was this a whirlwind. I mean, it was awesome just like romance. every 
every girl's dream. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if guys dream of that swept kind of stuff, but feet. it was, I totally got swept off my feet and it just yeah. seemed like all the pieces of the puzzle were finally all coming together. All of your dreams are coming true. Yeah. And or like at I least had, about to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, there was still, oh, we've talked about this, Davey, there was still some grief in it for me. Yeah. I was leaving my family, leaving Portland, right. getting married. Everything was changing all at once. So it can feel a little bit chaotic. Yeah, and for sure. I remember packing my all my physical possessions into about six boxes and then realizing how expensive it was going to be to ship six boxes across wow. the country. And we were on a church planner's salary. So then Whew. he was like, can, do you think you can narrow it to three boxes? So then I'm trying to fit all wow. of my worldly possessions <laughs> into three, boxes, three boxes after already having given up everything and go on this road trip. this book called Packing Light. Yes. And I'm like <laughs> resenting the fact that I wrote this book. Right. But I, I felt like... Okay, I'm I'm really I'm making a sacrifice yeah, because you're being obedient to the Lord and making a sacrifice yes. and doing the honorable thing. And, and this is not about me. I'm stepping into absolutely. a story that's bigger than myself, wow. and I'm, um, you know, yeah, making a sacrifice for for right. the kingdom. And um, so moved across the country, and nine days after our wedding, so we got married on December 31st, and then um, January 8th was the day that we moved to West Palm Beach and started this church, and really within about. Mm, two days of my wedding is when I started to see that there were some really concerning things that wow. uh, were happening in the relationship that um, made me, I was afraid. I was, uh, I kind of didn't know what I had got myself into. And I think deep in my gut, although I would never have said this at the time, I knew about the second night of my honeymoon, I knew that this was not mm. going to work. Wow. But so now I the, also... The, the... The, the magical happy ending is getting dismantled. <laughs> yes. Two days um, into it. Wow. So, but I also didn't tell anyone. Right. And um, I felt like I kept telling myself, well, maybe when we get settled in our new home in Florida, things will be better. Or maybe when, you know, things aren't quite so stressful with the church plant, or maybe when yeah. this happens or when that happens, or maybe when we get paid a little bit more money, we won't be so stressed about money. Um, mm. And kept putting it off thinking, you know, things would get better. And then also I felt like all the things that I had learned and known about, you know, what it takes to make a marriage work. Yeah. My parents have been married 40 years this year in November. Wow. And so there's a, a long history of really uh, long committed marriages in my family and my extended family. And I'm grateful for that. Um, my parents have been such an incredible example of unconditional selfless love. And so I was committed hundred percent to making the relationship work and making the marriage work. And I was also miserable for most of the time. I mean, most of those early days, I have a hard time, even when I think back now, remembering, like I have a hard time recalling a very positive memory. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of positive memories. Well, you know, one of the things I know about church planting is that Every if there's a pressure that can happen in life, it's going to happen in church planting. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's going to it's going to squeeze yeah. out every bit of character flaw that you have in you. Yes, and it's going to reveal it. All that totally. stuff's going to come to the surface. And so you guys were in this perfect storm situation: yep. new city, new yep. church, new job. Some yep. people get new jobs and move to a new city, but they can find a church that they're not the ones starting. Totally. So they can go into an established yes. community and there's fine fellowship, find yeah. there's something that's straining, they can find counseling, they can find whatever, right? But you guys are starting this venture. Yep. Everything's new. Yep. Everything. Yeah. And so now all this pressure is being applied. Yeah. And, and I was I mean, I think I was really ill equipped yeah. for for what, you know, for that season that we were stepping into, which I mean, in our weakness, God is strong. I right. do think I look back now and I think 
I can see it from both angles where I think like we never should have, I have moments where I'm like, we never should have done that. Who the heck let us, yeah. <laughs> you know, like who, why didn't someone step in and go, this is not a good idea. This is too much change all at once. And then there's another fair, side of me. feel like you're being obedient. Totally. You're like, hey, we're starting a church. Totally. We're helping people out and yeah. doing this together, you yeah. know, uh, power couple, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It did feel like that yeah. in moments. Wow. So, um, yeah. So... Uh, fast forward to November of 2015, wait, 15. Yeah, yeah 2015 15. was when everything finally fell apart. And there are a bunch of other touch points in the story, right. like moments when things seemed to blow up and seemed like maybe they might get better, Yeah, where we were confronted, you know, a couple of different times. We were confronted by people who noticed something strange mm-hmm. and loved us and cared and wanted to help. And... Um, and then th- finally things it reached their breaking point at the yeah. end of 2015 and it was it was a Thursday one week before Thanksgiving was the day that everything exploded and wow. that we finally separated and then um by April of 2016 our divorce was final wow so everything yeah. toward the end happened really quickly although in the middle of it it was just long seasons of right. darkness right. and trying right. to figure out we moved we left the church plant um and moved this is the other thing too, because you know I've heard some of your stories of planting mm-hmm. a church, and yep. just like there's so many relational tensions and strains, not even in your marriage if you're right. married, but also outside of it, outside with people, and yeah. with you know like members of the church, and then yep. with other people on staff. And I remember having this realization as I was helping you with your book that like we were the problem couple, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we were the ones, you know. And I it breaks my heart because I, but then it also gives me tons of compassion yeah. because I think like. People, there's a, there's something going on under the surface. Yes, when people are suffering, couple, yeah, yeah people are really suffering pain. and they act right. crazy. I mean, right. we just we're doing the best we could. I believe I know I can say with full confidence I was doing the best I could. I was doing everything I knew how to do, and even still falling short in a thousand ways in yeah. my marriage and in my role at the church and in friendships. I mean, I lost tons of friendships because yeah. you can't be hiding that much of your life. Right. and stay in relationship and stay in community. It's like the minute that there are secrets you're keeping from people, those secrets become, um, it's like an invisible yep. veil, but yep. a very real Separation block. between, mm-hmm. yep, exactly. So, And it's very much felt. Yes. Very much felt. Yes. And I've had wow. to go back and make amends with a lot of people who loved me and cared for me and did really try to reach out and saw yeah. some things that were concerning to them. And um, I thought at the time I was doing the right thing. I really felt like uh, I was covering my husband and I was covering yeah. our marriage and I was protecting us and the coupleship and the partnership. And looking back now, I wish I wish I wouldn't. I wish I would have just told the truth sooner. Yeah, that's yeah. what I wish. Well, that's hard. I mean, if you you know, we've sat and talked a little bit about that idea of not wanting to slander or, you know, paint somebody in a certain mm-hmm. light or, you know, especially in this situation where right. in a divorce situation, regardless, there are two sides of the story. Totally. And that's realistically, that's why divorce has happened is because, you know, I mean, there there's one person believes mm-hmm. one, one way about the relationship, the other person believes the other way. And so at some point, whether or not there had been some, uh, eventually some agreement on what actually took place, that right. in that moment, you're disagreeing about what took place. Right. You have two different stories. And now you're wanting to protect him by not slandering him. Right. And yet it's putting you in a position 
where it's creating this these weird tensions in your relationships because right. everybody's asking the question, what happened? What's right, going on? Right. Why are you, you know, yeah. doing this? Especially in a church context. Yes. Well, especially in a church leadership context where you're even more so, yes. Something being leadership expected context. of you. Like you're supposed to I remember one time this woman in our church coming to me and and asking me for mentorship and guidance yeah. because she was struggling in her marriage and she'd been married married for 20 plus years and was telling me stories about things her husband had done and said and i just remember being like i am so in over my head right mm. now i have no idea what to tell you yeah. because how to even advise you i mm-hmm. i've been married 6 months at this point or 8 months wow. or whatever and i'm so lost in my own marriage and i and i have no idea where i can go for help that's a safe place and she's coming to me cuz she assumes i'm a safe place and right. i want to be a safe place but how do i even do that and so yeah, it's just it's never black and white or cut and dry. It's always really, really complicated. And I right. do think anytime you put someone in a position where they feel like you aren't able to tell the truth, yeah, that you you back someone into a corner. Yeah, you know, I I've thought about this as we've watched in our culture in the last couple of years, watched um, spiritual leader after spiritual leader, yeah. and most of them are men. Honestly, part, that's partly because that's how our culture is built. Right, that these right. a bunch of men are in spiritual leadership and they're falling from grace over and over again. Yeah. And I just think like we are setting them up for failure because right. anytime you put someone in a position, you put them on a pedestal and we actually don't want you to tell the truth right. because the minute you tell the truth, we, the, the, our image of you gets yeah. broken and yeah. we're so, we're so attached to that, having that image of you because it makes us feel good that we put you in a position where you can't tell the truth. And the minute you can't tell the truth, there's no room for growth. Right. You're set up for failure. It's like we put them on this pedestal and then we're so shocked when they when fall they off fall. of it. Yep. They were never meant to be up there in no, the first place. No, absolutely not. So yeah. anyway, and where's the space like in church for for you to be transparent on it and honest, right? And go, okay, hey, this is what really happened, you know. Right. Um, and we've we've talked about this, just the the stigma, especially with divorce mm-hmm. within the church. There's this massive stigma that surrounds it, you know. Yeah. Um, and 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 so, and I, f- I feel like there's probably so many listeners out there that feel that stigma. They step mm-hmm. into a church, they've been divorced, or they're going through a divorce in the middle of their church context or church family, yeah. most often you do not see someone who they're, they're in a church family and then they go through this divorce, stay in that church family. Right. They, they want to find, if they stay in the church, they want to find another church family that doesn't know them from right. their past right. because there's such a stigma surrounding that. How, yeah. how did that feel for, for you as you're walking through this? So you're not just church planting, church leadership, but mm-hmm. in the body of Christ and now, you know, this thing that you thought never would have happened in your life, right? So yeah. all these dreams that are, that are, that are now dying yeah. in you. Um, but then being heaped on that, this stigma that you're walking with, this shame that you're walking with, walk us through that a little bit in your life. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that uh, was true for me that in terms of staying in the same church family or keeping relationships that were relationships while you were married is, you know, to a certain extent, I was living, not to a certain extent, to a great extent, I was living a lie. I was keeping so many secrets mm-hmm. from people that part of the... It's partly about a stigma that the church has about divorce that makes it hard to... Sh- it's just really hard to show up to church alone. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, but, Especially when you're used to showing up with someone else. Yes. Yeah. But, but in general, it's hard, hard to show up alone. Yes. Uh, I mean, all around. People just like show up alone. We yeah. do not make it easy for people right, to show up to church right. alone. Um, but I think also, too, to a place where you've shown up as one person, this really polished, put together, I've yeah. got the answers mm. kind of person for a long time, It's it feels twice as hard to show up 
in the truth of you, which yeah. is, I don't have any answers. I'm a mess. I need help. I wow. need support. I don't know what I'm doing. I have been lying to you all for wow. so long. So that figuring, navigating that pathway, sometimes it's easier to just start fresh and start mm. over with a new group of people and practice telling the truth, you know, from, from starting at zero. Right. And then you have, have to learn like in little baby steps that, that I can tell the truth and I won't be rejected. Because yeah. the fear is if I show up and tell you the truth, you only really wanted me because you thought I was so put yeah, together exactly. and you thought I was, you know, something I wasn't. The minute I show up with who I am, you're not going to, I'm not yeah. going to be, be welcome here. you or be welcome. And so I think I found myself in just small ways after we split up testing waters with friends. Mm. Like, can I tell you the truth and will you, are you going to leave me? And the hard part about that is, is there is, there are some people, many people who will reject you mm -hmm. the minute they find out who you truly are, which has way more to do with them than it does with you. It has to do with their own fears of inadequacy and inferior, right. inferiority and whatever. Um, but I mean, I did have friends who rejected me when they mm -hmm. found out the truth about, you know, I, I think people also all of their own fears of their own marriage ending or relationship yeah. ending or the romantic story that they've pictured for themselves in their head not being true, all those fears get triggered when you start talking about what's really going on behind the closed doors right. of the marriage. So um, marriage is messy. Even the best marriages are right. messy. So right. yeah. So I think that when you start talking honestly about that, people's fears get triggered and um, some people don't really, they're not ready, I guess, to know yeah. the truth. Yeah. Um, I've been encouraged by the people in my life who have really embraced mm. the whole, the wholeness of the story, which is like, there's, it's not one way or the other way. Right. Like even when I talk about my ex-husband, um, he's not all bad or all good, mm. you know, neither am I. It's like, how can we, I think that's the work is like, how can we embrace the wholeness of the story, which is like, there's darkness yeah. in all of our hearts. And yeah. we've talked about that before too. Right. Just realizing in the quiet of my home after he left, I it was so easy for me to blame him when he was in the house. Mm. Um, his, his, the way he dealt with his shame was more overt than the way that I dealt with mine. Mm. So it was easy for me to blame, uh, just put heap all of the, the blame and responsibility onto him. And then when he left, I realized there was so, it was just like I was left in this quiet silence yeah. vacuum of a house. And it was like, I saw all the darkness wow. in my own heart. Now you're having to deal with you. Come to the surface. Let's, yes. let's lean into that a little bit more. Let's talk okay. about that because you're now having to do business with God yeah. between you and him face to face, put all the other parties out of the equation. Yeah. So for now we can put that whole church conversation on hold. We can come back to that. Okay. But first in your wrestling with this, yeah. after the divorce, you're now having to like, what was that? What was that like between you and Jesus? How did mm. that change your perspective of God? How did that change your relationship with God? Walk us through that season a little bit. Yeah, I think the first realization for me was, well, it was a progression because in the beginning, I had this self-righteousness that is, self-righteousness is always a protection mm. against yep, feeling our own inadequacy. Yeah. So I did have this self-righteousness like, I was right about him, you know, like I knew all yeah. along this is all his fault. And um, I remember talking to a friend on the phone and she said to me just a really, she's, um, you know, prophetic, but she said, are you, are you mad at God? And I, this is like three days after he moved out of my house. And I said, no, I'm not mad at God at all. In fact, I feel so relieved. I just feel so much relief. Like finally I can move on with my life and, you know, um, kind of like, 
I don't even, I didn't say this, but in my heart, I was thinking like really make something of myself. Right. Like finally, like I right. can get back on track because yep. he was the problem. So yeah, wow. watch me, you know, and um, it was a slow unraveling, I think of like falling asleep alone at night and hearing the thoughts about myself and about other people and about him that would go around in my head and having to really sit alone with those thoughts and realizing how dark that place yep. was. And, um, and then, you know, also to me, in order for that story to be true, that he was the problem, the the only natural um, like continuance of that story is like, I'm going to meet someone else and he's going to be amazing yeah. and he's going to prove me right. And I always deserve to have someone incredible all along. And so fast forward a year when that didn't happen, mm. that was when I got mad at God. Wow. And then there was a moment that I, uh, uh, not a moment, there was a night I can remember. I wrote about this in my book where everything fell apart for me. I was in the middle of selling the house. According mm. to the divorce agreement, I had to sell our house. So I was pissed at God about moving out of my house. Mm. I had moved so many times. I did not want to move again. I did not want to get rid of my stuff again. I felt like I was just digging my heels in. And I had the ha had, had the house on the market. And in Nashville, at this time last year when I was selling the house, or eh, it's maybe been 18 months now, um, houses were selling in like three hours of going on yeah, the market. Okay, right. My house had been on that market 40 days and it wasn't wow. selling. So I'm pissed. I'm sitting in my house and I'm drinking wine all by myself. Mm. I drink a bottle and a half of wine by myself. I'm like, I light a bonfire in my backyard. I'm like burning my wedding quill and just like, Man. and then I, I just feel like I'm just like, um, like thrashing around, just like desperate, you know, like the yeah. most desperate energy ever of like, Show up, you know, mm -hmm. like what the like, where hell? Where are you? Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. I'm drunk. <laughs> I call a friend <laughs> over and I'm I just like, anyway, the story's too long to tell the whole thing, but lots of thrashing around, lots of trying to figure out like, what am I even going to do next if the house doesn't sell? And um, when I finally got all of that anxious, nervous, angry energy out of me and settled down, um, it, I laid down in bed and... I remember I laid down on my bed and closed my eyes and my ex-husband's face came up mm. for me. And uh, I felt God say to me, let him go. Mm. And I was like, I've let him go. I mean, yeah. you know, like I hate him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And God was like, let him go. And I just remember in my mind's eye, putting my hand on his chest and saying like, I release you to be mm. who you need to be in the world, which really released me. As much exactly. as I him. You were no longer a prisoner of that. And I just, that's what like you just said, I've let him go. I hate him. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you haven't let him go. <laughs> Clearly, because you have yeah, all of these. So much you're a energy. prisoner of these emotions, this energy that you're like wasting on him yeah. right now. And so you really have not relinquished that yeah. totally to the Lord. And that's wow, what a powerful moment. Yeah. I've just felt this, it was just like this breaking point. It felt like the analogy I used was like ice popping. It was like ice wow. cracking. And I felt my Self just kind of melt, and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and yeah. sobbed for an hour, probably. Yeah. And then, and the realization in that moment was like uh, the way I said it was that we, um, that God meets us at the end of ourselves, mm. and most of us organize our lives so we never get there. Get, wow. And I realized I had worked so hard for nine months to make sure I never got to that moment. And in that moment, I realized I'm closer to God than I've ever been. Wow. I was furious at him. I mean, I was thrashing around, furious, digging my heels in. And then literally the next morning, I got an offer on my house and it sold that day. Wow. So um, just you, the kind of release that that yep. had for me, it was, it was just, 
I felt so, uh, I felt God's grace so clearly yeah. in that moment because it was like at my worst, yeah. there he was, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're wrestling with massive, um, uh, this whole transition of identity, mm. you know, this whole, and, and that's something I've wrestled with too, is like, okay, I used to be two that was one. Yeah. Now I'm one that feels more like a half. <laughs> I'm not really me anymore. Yeah. Like who who am I with this? Right. And I remember very clearly, Ali, I think we've talked about this very clearly. I I woke up, this was probably a month or two after Amanda passed. I woke up from a dream where in the dream, Amanda was falling asleep. And I knew that if she fell asleep, if her eyes closed, she went fully asleep, that, that it was done. But as she's falling asleep, she's telling me that she wants to divorce me. Mm. And so I'm like, I'm like trying to yeah. wake her up. No, 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 don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Like, come on, we can, we can do this. We can fight, right? And I wake up in a cold sweat with these, these feelings that I'm, that I didn't, I didn't know I have to wrestle with. Yeah. Like I didn't, why should I have to wrestle with this in my situation where my wife is murdered and she's taken from me and we had an unbelievable marriage. In Mm. fact, the last year of our marriage was the best of our marriage. (laughs) You know, I'm so many times weeks leading up to her death. I just look at her and go, does anybody have a love like us? Like, this is Mm. just awesome. This is incredible. Right. And now I'm waking up a couple months later after her death with these emotions of abandonment, mm. reject, rejection, betrayal, these things. And and I think it was about a month later I read Elizabeth Elliot's Path of Loneliness. And she had a very similar experience with a friend who had just got a divorce. And Elizabeth obviously had lost two husbands at this point to death. And she said in the book, she said, as I talked to my friend, I realized there was a deeper pain than losing someone to death. Yeah. And divorce can most certainly feel like that. Yeah. Because of these emotions of, you know, now you have the other party is still yeah. living their life and still choosing to completely reject. Now right. you feel completely abandoned, worthless. Right. You know, feelings of inadequacy. Inadequ- mm-hmm. And then you're in this year of unraveling and you're face to face confronted with that by God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that was one of the ways that God has really met me and healed me is forcing me to face and confront my own fears of rejection and abandonment, which felt like they came true. You know, you go, nobody goes into a marriage thinking like you sort of go into a marriage thinking like, this is going to heal that part of me that right. fears so much that I'm going to be rejected. Right, and absolutely. And I think I realized um, it, the minute that I put the responsibility on someone or something outside of me to heal yeah. that, wow, that I've I've given away all of my power yeah. to to have any kind of real heart healing or change. Um, and I put so much of that onto him. And I think you know when I think about him in the best light I can. I think he really took that role on mm. fully, completely, seriously. He saw my woundedness and really mm. wanted to fix it for me. And I think there's there's for a human being to take on that role, like no wonder he felt yeah. the weight that he felt, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I I said this to you earlier today, but like we, when human beings are desperate, we do crazy yeah. crazy stuff. Absolutely. So, anytime you someone's behavior seems unreasonable to you, Mm. they're desperate. Mm. So I think about his behavior, I think he was so desperate and I know what it feels like to be desperate and it doesn't excuse the behavior. It doesn't mean like, you know, we just have a license to act irrational, but um, it does explain it and it explains it 
in a way that doesn't equal, well, he acted that way because, you know, you were a terrible wife yeah. or he acted that way because you weren't enough for him or right. whatever. So if, coming to terms with all of that for me has been where so much of the healing has come from. Like I have to ask the question, uh, I remember, I remember laying awake in bed many times at night and thinking, why couldn't he love me? Mm. And answering that question has been the hardest and the most healing thing that I've done. Um, yeah, so you're talking about something that's like, it's, it's, a, it's such a catch-22 because you're talking about being able to find your peace and your identity mm-hmm. in you by yourself, right? Not mm-hmm. having to depend on someone else's love for your feelings of adequacy. Mm-hmm. And yet marriage, the beautiful picture of marriage is that it's two becoming one, mm-hmm. right? So you like everything's joined mm-hmm. and now you are kind of like right. not codependent. Codependent's not the healthy version, yeah. but it's like interdependent. interdependent yeah. yeah. You're like, and so, so where's the, where's the tension in that as you're walking through this? How do you, how do you find that, that right balance and tension between two people, two lives becoming one, but also maintaining their personhood? Yeah. Well, so there's, can I talk about it from a psychological perspective? Yeah, Cause absolutely. that's kind of yeah. how, where, how my mind works. And yeah, then my I'll dad's bring it a, back to the Bible. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Cause <laughs> I believe all truth is God's <laughs> is truth. God's truth you yeah. know? This is just my paradigm because yeah. my dad's a therapist and I've been since, especially like during the marriage and then post marriage, right. I've been doing lots of counseling. That's been really helpful for me. And I'm, I geek out on like uh, psychology books about yeah. attachment theory and stuff. So, yeah. um, so essentially, like I've heard you say before, you said this even on this on the podcast that your marriage to Amanda was, you know, you would say like, does anyone have a marriage yeah, as good as yeah. we have? When I see partnerships or marriages like that, I think it's it has to do with your attachment style. So you have a really secure attachment style. Amanda has a really secure attachment style. Mm. Your your partnership is likely to be very um, calm, loving, secure. Mm. Uh, there's likely to be a sense with each other that. You know, from Amanda's side of things, like if I'm really struggling or wrestling, Davy's going to be here for me. From mm. your side of things, like she's never going to abandon me. Right. And that that um, kind of partnership sets you up to have a secure attachment, and a secure attachment sets you up to have that kind of partnership. So it's like a chicken or the chicken wow. or the egg question, like which comes first? Which one? Yeah. So there's a, there was a study done called the Harvard study that was one of the um, largest longitudinal studies that's ever been done that followed a group of, I think, 200 men for uh, their entire lifespan. So yeah. actually, I think it started when they were in college, when they were in college at Harvard, and then followed them till death. And what they found was that the largest predictor for these men's success, so they they measured their, what they called the decathlon of success. So like financial success, career success, mm-hmm. success in their marriage, how, on a scale from one to 10, how much their kids liked them, quality of relationships in their life. Yeah. The, the number one predictor for how these men did on the decathlon of success was their relationship to their mother, to their primary caregiver. Wow. Which has a lot to say about attachment theory that we learn even how to regulate our own affect, even our own digestion, our um, sense of safety in the world, our, our anxiety, our depression, our levels of serotonin in our brain, all of that is regulated. You know, it's why now there's such an emphasis on skin-to-skin contact at mm-hmm. birth. Like that connection between a, a, a child and your primary caregiver sets you up It's for, for life, you know, yeah. for like how safe and secure you feel in the world, how likely you are to succeed in your other relationships. Um so we don't, you know, you'll hear in a lot of pop 
culture, um, self-help stuff. Yep. You know, you can't really love anyone else until you love yourself. Yeah, right. That's sort of half true, mm-hmm. but it's also like you can't really love yourself until someone else shows someone you how to love yourself. You. Well, yeah. So, wow. um, so that's like the, I feel like the challenging piece of this is it's easy to get when you come out of a, a tumultuous relationship or a series, in my case, a series of tumultuous relationships yeah. that have all had kind of negative endings to think, um, well, like, I just kind of feel like a victim, you know, yeah. it's like, n- you know, nobody's ever going to love me. Even that question I would ask myself, like, why couldn't he love me? Uh, the reason I say the answer to that question was the hardest and most healing thing for me is because the answer to that question is his inability to love me had nothing to do with me. Mm. And my ability to create a secure and lasting partnership that I desired to have with someone has everything to do with my own ability to create a sense of safety and security and love within myself that I can't just do it all by myself, but that I also can't depend 100% on anyone else to do it for me. So... I mean, one of the ways that I've done it is um, it's a, it's, there's a sense, it's a safer way to do it to start doing that with friendships because yeah. friendships are not quite as charged as romantic relationships. Right, so, right. You'll, you know, you oftentimes hear people say like, oh, I, I um, put myself on a, like a moratorium from dating for a year mm-hmm. or six months or whatever. I think one of the reasons why that works is because it gets you to focus on friendships, building a sense of security right. in friendships that way when it comes time to turn up the the dial on intimacy yep. where like all of your attachment wounds get triggered like any old stuff from your you know like any kind of disconnect with your primary caregiver when you get into a romantic relationship all that stuff flares absolutely. up absolutely so if you're in a place of vulnerability it's like or you know right after a bad breakup or um you're questioning your own value or worth and you're trying to turn up the volume yeah. on intimacy yeah. you're going to see You'll see All yourself go of, crazy. Yeah, it's like things. Well, get... I believe the basis for good intimacy, or flourishing intimacy in a marriage, is friendship, community. Right. It's exactly what yes. it is. So you have to have this like really right and true companionship where right. you have this friendship because when things are not, you know, I mean, that's intimacy is that into me you see, right? Mm-hmm. Is that idea of like you see everything about me right. and you love me and accept me and receive right. that no matter what, all the junk, everything, totally. is, and so. That's friendship right. at, at a true level. And then that, when it gets notched up or ratcheted up into like romantic intimacy, mm-hmm. right? Or these yeah. feelings like this, you know, this whole nother level of things. Yeah. The base level is still friendship. Right. So when those things are not ratcheted up, right. it's still friendship is right yes. there. And you're able to treat one another with honor and respect. Yeah. And, and, and in friendships, we and, can practice. We can do like yeah. baby step versions of the things that create intimate partnerships, which is like, you know, the number one thing is, can I tell the truth about myself? Can right. I show up as exactly who I am? Even if I fear that that might disappoint this other person, right. even if I fear that I might get rejected, can I still show up yeah. with my whole heart and speak the truth about myself? So you practice that in friendships, in in areas of your life where you already know there's some sense of safety, then you can kind of take that safety that you gain. Like it's a sense of like, oh wait, I will be accepted for who I am. And you can carry that into mm. a, a, a more intimate partnership. Yeah. So... I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I think you're right well, on Well, that's interesting. So like in scripture, I told you I was going to bring it back to the Bible, right? <laughs> so marriage is founded by God, right? Genesis mm-hmm. chapter two, he created, he established it. He said, okay, this is something I want to give to mankind. And the way he does it is he creates everything, right? In the six days, he creates all these things, animals, the sky, the land, the plants. And he looks at everything, he goes, it's good. Everything's, all this stuff that I've created is good. And then he goes, 
okay, I'm going to create man in our image. And he creates man. And he says, that's very good. Mm. And then he says something that's so astounding. We just gloss over it. But he actually mm. said there was something not good about his creation. He like was the first art critic. He's like, yeah. wait, hold on. Something's not good here. And it was that it is not good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. So he created woman to for there to be this interdependent relationship mm-hmm. because he God himself said it is not good for man to be alone. Right. Which that doesn't mean that it's like you're not right if you're single. That's not what that means. Right. What that means is we're we're built to be in community with mm-hmm. each other. Right. Yeah. So whether it's a marriage community or whether it's friendships or whatever it is, we just can't do this thing alone. Right. We're meant to and built to do things inter- interdependently. Right. And it gets really weird and messy when you start getting into that codependence, but we're built to be interdependent. But the way he does it is really powerful because I think it touches on exactly what you're doing. He like knocks Adam out, puts him to sleep because he's like, dude, you're going to screw this up <laughs> if you get involved in this, right? And so he's like, I'm going to put you to sleep. And he takes a rib from Adam and he and he fashions woman. Mm-hmm. And so so Adam, before he meets Eve, he has relationship with God. And he has responsibility. He's given a job. He's given the the task of working in the garden, of naming the animals. So there's there's this sense of identity and personhood Mm -hmm. that is established in Adam by his creator, God. And then Eve, Adam's asleep. God creates Eve, and God brings Eve to Adam. So Eve has that same sense of identity and personhood, Mm -hmm. relationship established with God, before she's brought to Adam. And then the two are able to do exactly what they were created to do with each other interdependently before the fall because they each had a relationship with God. They Mm -hmm. each were able to have peace and security in themselves and then bring that into the relationship. And then it says they were naked and felt no shame. Yep. And that's the goal, Right. right? That's the goal of relationship. Yeah. Especially marriage relationship is like, hey, you see everything about me. Totally. And I don't feel shameful about this. Yeah. I feel Which, received. I mean, I think to to your point about that being the point is that they were naked and felt no shame. Right. I think so often we make the point, did I make the relationship work? Like I, yeah. this has been something I've been really passionate about lately because I watch relationship coaches that are out there um, and people too. I, I was um, watching this thread unfold on Twitter the other day. These women talking about why are we still single? They were women in their mm. late 30s and everybody's postulating these ideas like, well, it has to do with men in our culture. Men just, you know, can't deal with commitment. Or then another woman was saying, well, I think we need to talk about, you know, our part in it. I really think it's Mm. women doing this. And my feeling was like, I think we're asking the wrong question. I think whether you're single or dating or engaged or married or divorced or whatever, for all of us, the work is intimacy. It's all of us. The work is like, can I heal my attachment wounds? Can I deal with my intimacy issues? Can I learn how to show up in my life with my whole heart? Can I be fully who I am and who God created me to be um, unapologetically, even when I'm rejected, even when I'm condemned, even when I'm lied about, even when I'm, it's like Jesus, you know, shows us exactly how to do that. Like arms splayed open. Right. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, like and I that's, think that's the, the thing. It's like even when I mess up, yes, because like I'm gonna mess up. So when I do, can I still come into this relationship, this community, right. and feel right, accepted and loved and received? Because that's what happened. Adam and Eve messed up, right? Genesis three, the fall, and then Adam's walking in the garden, or God's walking in the garden, going, "Adam, where are you?" And they're covering themselves yeah. up. 
because they're ashamed. Yeah. Of what that to done. me too, that picture of like, it wasn't that God left. I mean, that I reminds me of being in my house that night, drinking all the wine and yeah. lighting the fire. And it wasn't that God left. It was my sense that I wasn't with him. Yeah. Like God is there going, where are you? And Adam is the one who's hiding. Yeah. And I think like there are a million ways that we hide. We hide behind our images, our social media, right. our cars, our houses, our marriages, our relationship status, our whatever, like all of that stuff that we're putting on to mask who we really are. And all along, God's going like, where are you? Where, where are, are you? you? And yeah. he's been here all along. And so, you know, I mean, that for me was like the the letdown moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean that in the most positive way. It was like the breaking point moment of like, even at, even when I'm naked and ashamed and hiding in a corner, there's God going, where are you? Where wow. are you? I've always loved you. I've always been here. Um, so wow. yeah, I and I think I pay really close attention now to how People are hiding. We all are. Every single one of us. Yep. You know, like that's what an addiction is: hiding. Yeah. It's what um, pornography is: hiding. It's yep. what, uh, like, you know, they call it love addiction. Like people who are constantly dating someone else. It's mm. that's all hiding. It's like materialism. It's hiding. It's all hiding. Yep. It's that's exactly. We're hiding what it behind is. our Instagram profiles, our platforms, right. our even hiding behind our careers, hiding, we're just hiding, hiding, hiding. Right. And, and anyway. as, as someone who spends their life in church world, church work, yeah. and trying to create an environment where people like feel like they don't have to hide, yeah. it really pains me to know that sometimes as church world, we have created environments where people feel like they cannot come in and yeah. be loved and received and yeah. accepted for where they're at yeah. and loved into the place that they need to be. Yeah. And I want to talk some more about that. Like, what does that look like? And w- what did it look like for you in church mm-hmm. community with divorce and w- with stepping into that? Um, but we got to talk about it next time. Okay. <laughs> because we're out Deal. of time. And so we're going to, um, we're going to log off on this episode and join us next time for the nothing is wasted podcast. As we continue this conversation with Allie Fallon. Wow, that was such a good interview. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I hate cutting off those interviews in the I middle. Know. I'm like, okay, we gotta stop and we gotta go. We gotta wait for an episode two, but because we already know, <laughs> like we already I can't know wait how the for conversation two weeks from went. Now when the listener can listen to the rest of it because it's so good. In fact, part two I think is like just so rich. Yeah. It's unbelievable some of the stuff we talk about. But, yeah, full well, of healing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What was something in part one that really stuck out to you? Yeah, I think um, when Allie was talking about uh, the imagery of kind of like that rock bottom moment that she had, mm-hmm. right? And she said that she felt like she was slowly unraveling. Yeah. Um, and I just thought the imagery of that is um, pretty perfect. Like I've never obviously been in that um, situation that she's been in, but here on this podcast, you talk about like pain is pain. Right. Um, and so how you get to this point of desperation. And I just really like that imagery of like, hey, thread by thread. Yep. <laughs> At some point, you're just going to unravel and you're not going to be like a cord or a rope anymore, but yep. just like frayed rope. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And sometimes you feel like that too, that right. you're just like a frayed rope. And it's so crazy how oftentimes God has to allow us, he has to allow us to get to that rock bottom moment before we're open to hear from him, before we're... Um, ready to to receive what he has for our life before we stop depending on ourselves or depending on others and striving for ourselves. Yeah. Like understanding our need for yeah, him. This yeah, this seems to be like this common thread, no pun intended, but a common thread <laughs> with all of the stories that we hear. It's like I got to this rock bottom 
moment where I realized I, I, I need Jesus. Like I yeah. just need to surrender this. And it's almost like that's when God does his best work. I was literally just thinking that. Wow. Like I was going to interrupt you and say, that's when God does his <laughs> best work. Man, that's that's awesome. Yeah. Man. Hey, so um, I don't know. We say this every time, but uh, we hope that this podcast is helpful to you, that whatever situation you guys are in or uh, whatever trial you guys are preparing for yeah. that you're not in yet, that you can listen to this and um, hopefully find hope and healing in it um, or pass it on to somebody else who uh, needs hope or healing in their own life. But uh, And if, we really do want to hear from you. We really, <laughs> really do. Um, yeah. We we love you guys. Like, we don't know Absolutely. all of you, but we love you. Um, and we we want good things for you. And right. we want to hear, like, what things are happening in your life and how we can even be praying for you. So um, if you would want to reach out to us, truthfully, we would love it. Um, we'd love to hear from you at hello at resonateindy.com. Mm-hmm. Um, someone will respond yep. <laughs> and uh, figure out what we can do to serve you and uh, what questions we can answer for you. Um, the other thing that we'd love for you guys to do in your spare time um, is is rate and review. Yeah, um, it's so helpful. It is so yeah. helpful. And again, like we get to see some stories that way right. too, which has been really fun. But um, this podcast is available on Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. And so you guys can rate and review it there. Again, the more you rate and review it, the more the other people get to see it. Um, and yeah. hear this message of hope. Right. And of course, all of the music has been provided by our friend, Ryan O'Neill. He goes by Sleeping at Last, mm-hmm. and that's like his artist handle. So make sure you check out Ryan O'Neill, but make sure you type in Sleeping at Last. Check out Sleeping at Last on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere where music is streamed or sold, and get some more of his stuff because it's awesome. Yeah. It's so good. So join us next time on the Nothing is Wasted podcast. In the meantime, why don't you listen to this excerpt from part two of my interview with Ali Fallon. Another huge lesson for me has just been like, get out of your own way. Mm. You know, like I've had this visual image of just getting in the flow. It's like, get in the river, you know, like in the summer when you, when you like ride the river, like in a tube or whatever, it's like, we spend so much of our lives fighting against what God is already trying to do. And if we can just get into the flow, Mm. I felt like God said to me almost a year ago, let it be easy. Just let it be so easy. And it doesn't mean it's painless yep. when you do that, yeah. but it is so easy because the things you just like let things unfold as they're yep. meant to unfold. You don't feel like you're constantly fighting this uphill yeah. battle. Um, but instead, I do most of this like gripping and striving, striving and, and trying mm-hmm. and fighting and um, well, you're trying to garner control because yeah. there's like so much of your life that feels out of control. Yes. So you're going, oh, I gotta grasp on yes. for something, some yes. kind of thing that allows me to feel like I'm in control of this mm-hmm. because. We really want to be in control, even though that's the greatest illusion. Totally. (laughs) And one thing I say in my book is you can either be in control or you can be in love, but you can't be in both.